Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you. (laughs) My name is Darren, and I'm one of the shepherds on staff. If you're a guest with us or if you're visiting, I know we got a bunch of the crew from Biola that's here. We're very happy to have you with us and uh, excited to have you join us in our ongoing study of the book of John. If you're family around here, we're excited that you're here too. And we hope those of you who are visiting will uh, will soon come to call this place home and and we'll find a place where you can worship regularly and plug in. Uh, We are looking at all of John chapter 7. I know we just read a section there from the end, but we're looking at the entirety of it today. Uh, And the thing that strikes me about John 7 as we sort of walk our way through, the first thing I'd want to draw your attention to is the... uh, the diversity of opinion with regard to Jesus that's represented in this one chapter. I mean, we see the entire spectrum of different responses. Even in, uh, even in what we just read, if you look at verse 40, um, just think about all the different sort of approaches here. Uh, in response to the same guy, the same teaching, the same things that he's doing, and yet there's such a broad array of response. In 40 it says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Just after that, uh, you know, we see division among people over who he is. Uh, there are some who want to arrest him and some who want to lay their hands on him, but they can't. The, uh, the officers that the Pharisees have sent to arrest Jesus, they look at the Pharisees and go, yeah, we didn't arrest him because we never heard anybody talk like this before. So you've got the Pharisees who are frustrated with him, but their own police who are going, yeah, we're not going to touch him because he had some really important things to say. All throughout this chapter, we see just, I mean, it is the broadest spectrum of responses to the same man. And we see all of these different things, even from his own brothers. So if you go all the way to the beginning of John chapter 7, his own brothers in preparation for the Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, they're all headed up to Jerusalem. Feast of Tabernacles is one of the three major feasts of the Jewish people that happen during the year. Uh, feast of, and it's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It's a time when the Jewish people would remember the wandering of their ancestors through, uh, through the wilderness and God's provision during that time. So it was a huge celebration Uh, The men, the Hebrew men who lived within 15 or 20 miles of Jerusalem were required to come to the celebration. They would build build these little booths, that's why it's called the Feast of Booths, and sort of live in them for the entirety of that week uh, in remembrance of what God had provided and what God had done, and there was all kinds of celebration. Like I said, we'll get to it. But as Jesus' own brothers are preparing to go up to this, this ceremony and to these festivities, they look at Jesus and go, man, you know what? This would be a good opportunity for you to really make a name for yourself. Like, if you want to be a big deal, there's going to be a lot of people gathered, and this would be a great time for you to build some popularity and to do some of your magic tricks, and you could really wow the people. Just look here in the first five verses. It says in John 7, uh, verse 1 and following, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. They look at him and they go, man, if, if you're really trying to like make yourself into something big, if you want to be a big shot, you got to go up to the celebration. That would be a great place for you to do it. But their motivation is rooted in their own understanding of what he might want or what makes sense in the culture. It says they don't even believe in him for who he truly is. 
So we see their brother's response. We see all the different division. If you jump down to, uh, if you jump down to verse 11, it says, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? So we see people are anticipating and excited about seeing him. And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. If you jump down to, uh, jump down to verse 30, after Jesus is taught, it says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? There is such a diverse range of responses to Jesus. The people are all over the board. They, they aren't sure. Some people think he's a good man. Some people think he's leading people astray. And what I would want you to see as we begin our study of John chapter 7 is that the diverse range of responses to the singular person of Christ is no different in the world in which we live today than it was here in chapter 7. That today, the very same thing happens if you're sitting in a coffee shop or you're having a conversation with somebody in your workplace and you bring up the name of Jesus, there are a hundred different opinions about who he is. There are some people who will go, yeah, I believe that that is the Son of God. And there are some people who go, I believe that guy was a terror on the earth and that he brought all kinds of trouble and there's all kinds of wars and all kinds of bigotry and all kinds of terrible things that have happened because of his followers. There are people who would look at Jesus and go, well, I don't necessarily believe that he's God, but he seems like he was a good dude. You know, he seems like a nice guy who gave some good speeches and got killed before his time. That was a shame. There are all kinds of different perceptions of who this Jesus is. There are all kinds of people sort of tripping and stumbling over him, trying to figure out, is he? Isn't he? What should I believe about him? How does, he, how does this fit into my worldview? And we see this broad range. We see people stumbling over. It shouldn't be a surprise to us, either in our culture today or in the one that's described in John 7, because Isaiah told us that Jesus would be a stumbling block for people. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14 and 15, it says... And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. There's an overarching theme in the Gospel of John about people's misunderstanding of who Jesus is. They trip over him and they stumble over him. Why do we trip over things, right? Why do we stumble in our own life? We, we stumble when something is sort of put into our well-worn path, right? I don't know if you've ever uh, moved the furniture in your house or if you've changed things around and then you get up in the middle of the night and it's dark and you're trying to make your way to the bathroom and you forgot that you moved the couch or you moved the chair or you put a dresser where it wasn't one before and it, it can be a very painful thing. When you have a well-worn route, when you're used to going a certain way and thinking a certain way and doing certain things for a certain reason, and then all of a sudden an obstacle comes in that challenges or sort of obscures that well-worn path. The people are confused and they're divided and they're muttering and they're frustrated. I mean, in this one chapter, in chapter 7, we see some people call him prophet. We see some people call him Christ. We see some confused and some confident. We see officers disobedient to their bosses, Pharisees defiant. We see the crowd questioning and muttering and divided. They're all trying to fit Jesus into their frame of thinking. They're all trying to fit Jesus into their worldview, and they're confused. He leaves almost everybody in this chapter utterly confused. Have you ever been, um, 
Have you ever been confused by something and it wasn't until later that somebody sort of unlocked what it was you were looking at? Maybe you figured it out later. I, uh, I came home from work uh, several years ago now. I came home from work when my son Hank was in fourth grade. And uh, my kids will do their homework sometimes on our kitchen table. And I walked in and on the kitchen table I saw a letter that my son Hank had written. He was in fourth grade at the time so it was written in that, uh, that really weird boy fourth grade cursive. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, the letter said this. And I, I will admit I was confused about the letter. The letter that he had written said, uh, it started like this. Dear Mexican government. So that was weird at first too. I, like, I don't know why my fourth grader was writing to the Mexican government, or if that's even possible. Can you just write to the Mexican government like that? I don't know. Like, just put that in the mail. So it said, Dear Mexican government, you are so gracious and kind and wonderful. I look forward to drinking from your water fountains, right? May I please have your permission to drink from your water fountains? Sincerely, Hank McWaters. And I, I looked at that and I had a couple of questions, right? I didn't understand... Um, I didn't understand why my son was writing to the Mexican government, first of all. Secondly, I wasn't totally sure about his perception of them. I mean, I don't know anybody in the Mexican government, but he seems to be very familiar with them and know a lot about them in ways that, as far as I knew, he'd not met with any of them. So I was a, a little interested in that. And then I'll tell you, every time I've been to Mexico, they're very specific to say, do not drink from the water fountains, right? Like, I've been told that you could get really sick. So it troubled me. Not only was he writing them, but he was eager to drink from their water fountains and, in fact, asking their permission to do so. And so I did what any conscientious parent would do uh, faced with something like that. I took a picture of the letter, and I posted it on my Instagram. And uh, I said... What in the world is my kid learning at school, right? And uh, I thought that was, you know, I thought maybe the Instagram community would be able to enlighten me. Uh, Turns out what happened is I got a call from the principal of the school. I got to go to the principal's office for the first time in 20 years, so that was uh, fun. And uh, the principal called me and he goes, we don't like what you've said about our education. We don't like what you've said about this project. The teachers are frustrated. Why did you post this on Instagram? I said, why are you telling my kid to drink from the water fountains in Mexico, you know? And he goes, well, what you don't understand, sir, is that the children in fourth grade are doing kind of a model UN, right? And so each desk in the class represents a different country. And if you want to move around the classroom and do different things, you have, to, you have to do some diplomacy. So, you know, like the girl who sits next to the pencil sharpener, she might be Norway or whatever. And if you want to go and, you know, get your pencil sharpened, you have to write her a letter and, you know, do some diplomacy to get over there and do it. Your son was basically just asking the girl who sits next to the water fountain representing Mexico if he could come and have a drink. Now, once I understood that, it was like something was unlocked in my brain, right? And I went, okay, it's confusing until you explain it. And then, actually, it seems really smart. Like, that seems like a good project. But I didn't understand it at first. In fact, the only way for me to perceive it was with confusion. Can I tell you that when we look at a chapter like John chapter 7, and we see so many different responses to Jesus, the answer there is that the people don't understand his methods, They don't understand his motive. We see all of these responses because all of these people in John 7 are trying to fit Jesus into their preconceived ideas of what the Messiah should be or what he will be. They're also trying to fit Jesus into what they understand based on their own values, based on what they want, or what they think they know. 
right? Their worldview is informing their perception of Jesus, and the way Jesus does things is foreign to them. It's confusing to them. They don't get it because they've put their faith and they've put their confidence in the wrong things, and what Jesus does sort of is alien to them. It's interesting, in, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, Jeremiah says, for my people, and this is God speaking through Jeremiah, says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What a tragic proclamation God makes in Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, my people have made two evil mistakes. They've made two horrible mistakes. The first one is they've turned away from me, a fountain of living water, a source of sustenance, a place where they can be provided for and maintained and nourished. They've turned away from me, a fountain of living water, and they've chosen instead to dig cisterns of their own making, holes in the ground to hold water, but the cisterns they've dug themselves are incapable of holding water. They're broken cisterns. And so the people are always thirsty and they're always in need and they're never satisfied because they've turned away from the source of life and they've tried to satisfy themselves with their own devices and their own methods. The people in John chapter 7 are confused and they're all over the board because Jesus doesn't fit with the way in which they've organized their lives. And the brothers are a perfect example of this. We go back to the beginning of John chapter 7. They don't understand his method, and they don't understand his method because they do not share his motive, right? So I want to talk to you for a minute about the way Jesus in this text articulates both his method and the motive that drives that method. Remember his brothers have said to him in verse 3, the brothers say to, to Jesus, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. They're very focused on his works, on his miracles. They say, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. They misunderstand what he's trying to do. Jesus isn't seeking to be known as a popular figure. He doesn't want to be a character on the large stage. He's not looking for notoriety. In fact, we saw in chapter 6 that he went from a crowd of 10,000-something people who'd been fed, who were excited about him. By the end of chapter 6, we saw that he was down to about 11, 11 or 12 who were still following him, right? If Jesus was worried about being popular or staying on a big stage, if he was worried about drawing huge crowds, he would have done things differently. We joked last week that any one of us who know anything about marketing in America today could look at Jesus and go, man, you're doing something wrong if you go from 10,000 to 12 in 24 hours. You're losing that kind of customer base. You need to reprioritize your business plan. They look at him and they say, nobody does these things in secret if he wants to be known openly, but they fundamentally misunderstand that their perception of success is different than Jesus' perception of success. They see success as being known and seen and amazing a lot of people. So they say, why would you do these things in secret if you want to be known openly? If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you do these things, remember they hadn't believed, it says in verse 5. His brothers had not believed in him. They're like, if you're capable of all this miraculous stuff, do it out where people can be amazed by it. Take your show on the road, essentially. Go up to the festival of booths. Go up to the Feast of Tabernacles where there'll be a big crowd and, and put on a spectacle. And Jesus responds to them and he articulates really clearly for them and for us his methods and how they differ from his brother's idea of what his method should be. Jesus says in verse six, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. 
He says, my time has not yet come. Throughout the Gospel of John, not only what we've already studied, but what we'll study in the future, we see again and again a very keen sense of Jesus' obedience to the timing of his father. Remember when his mother comes to him at the wedding at Cana and she says, hey, the people don't have any wine. Is there something you can do? And his response is, my time has not yet come. We've heard him say that a couple of times already. Jesus is keenly aware of a different clock. And part of his method is an obedience to the timing of God that the natural man doesn't understand, that we don't understand. We look at this and we go, why is he doing things the way he's doing them? All throughout the text, we see places where Jesus is walking away from crowds. And that feels so un-American. It feels so uncapitalistic. Why are you walking away from crowds? Why are you hiding? Jesus says, my timing is different. He's obedient to the clock of God. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What's he mean, your time is always here? He says, well, on your clock, on your calendar, you can come and go as you please. You do what you want. That's the way your life is organized. You go where you want, when you want, for the reason you want. Your time's always here because you're the one who dictates your schedule. But I'm not dictating my own schedule, Jesus says. Your time is always here. My time has not yet come because my clock is different. Jesus is saying, I'm not on Darren McWater's standard time. I'm on kingdom standard time. Jesus' method is to be obedient to the timing of God. And if you find Jesus a little bit confounding, if you find Jesus a little bit confusing this morning, it might be because everything in our culture is organized to tell you you're the most important thing. Go where you want and do what you want and don't let anybody get in your way. Take care of yourself because if you don't take care of yourself, nobody else will. Climb over whoever you have to climb over and stab whoever in the back you've got to stab to work your way up the ladder or to fill up your bank account or to get as many Instagram followers as you can Our world says, you be the driver in in, in your life. Jesus says, well, you can go, come and go as you please, but I'm on somebody else's clock. I'm not functioning on American standard time. I'm not functioning on Jerusalem standard time. I'm not functioning on my brother's standard time, Jesus would say. I'm functioning on kingdom standard. I've set my clocks to kingdom standard time, and I'll go when God tells me to go. So we see in his method an obedience to God's clock, and obedience to God's timing. Not only that, look at what else he says. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. In verses seven and eight, he gives us two other glimpses into his method. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. It's interesting that he says to his brothers, the world can't hate you. Why can't the world hate his brothers? Because the brother's value system, right, the value system that says go make a spectacle and be a big deal and get a big crowd and gain some notoriety for yourself, that is commonplace. That's the way the world works. The world's not going to hate you for having the same value system they have. Again, you can come and go as you please and nobody's going to be frustrated with you because your worldview and your mindset is exactly the same as all these other people. He says, but they will hate me, right? And so what is he articulating? He's recognizing uh, there's a humility in this. There's a humble sense of, of the fact that he will be a bit obscure, that he will always be an outsider. Again, we saw that in chapter six, that he wasn't worried about the people that were walking away, that he wasn't worried about the people that were leaving. He recognizes that he's not gonna be popular that he's not going to make a ton of friends. Why? Because not only is his method humble, not only is it obedient to the, to the timing of God, but his method is also rooted in truth. And any time his method or any of our methods are rooted in truth, we're always going to be frustrated with people who don't like that truth, right? Or they're going to be frustrated with us. 
We're always going to face opposition. He says, the world won't hate you to his brothers. The world won't hate you because you basically speak the same language all of them do. He's like, but because I declare the truth, because I testify to the truth, I make enemies everywhere I go. People are frustrated. They don't want to be told that it's not about their clock and it's not about their fame and it's not about their notoriety. Jesus, in letting his brothers understand and by extension us understand something of his method, shows us that he's obedient to the timing of God, that he's content to be a humble outsider, and that he's speaking the truth. It's not miracles he's hoping to do, but rather declaring the truth to people. And that can be unsettling to them. It says in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Jesus said, I'm operating on a different clock and I'm operating in a way that is humble. I'm not after fame and fortune and power and influence. I'm also not interested in just wowing a crowd. I want to declare the truth to them and that will always set me apart. These are my methods. I'm about truth and humility and obedience. I think about John chapter, uh, John chapter 21. <clears throat> At the end of the book of John, when Jesus is talking to Peter about the way he will die. Remember that? I don't know if you've studied that passage. But Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you know, Pete, when you were young, you got up when you want and you got dressed the way you wanted and you went where you wanted to go. But he says, when you're old, someone else will get you up and they'll dress you the way they want to dress you and they'll take you by the hand and they'll lead you to a place you don't want to go. And he said this, it says, to indicate the way in which Peter would die. Can I tell you, it isn't just the way in which Peter will die physically at the end of his life that Jesus is articulating but the way in which every disciple of Jesus is called to die to himself. That sometimes we look at Jesus and we're confused or we're confounded or we're befuddled or we're muttering about him. We don't understand why he's doing what he's doing, but it's because we're operating under American standard time which says, do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it, for your own purposes and only to advance your agenda. But Jesus says there's a progression for those of us who are his followers where we stop doing what we want to do and we stop wearing what we want to wear and we stop going where we want to go, that we die to ourselves and there comes a time when what? God will dress us and God will lead us and he will take us to places we didn't ask to go. Right? Jesus says my methods are different than yours. And, and his methods are confusing to his brothers, Right? But his methods are rooted in his motive. And if you're trying to get your mind around his methods and how your methods can be like his, you have to understand his motive. So let's read on. Back to John chapter 7. It says, after his brothers, verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Remember, he's not looking for spectacle. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And about the middle of the feast, by the way, the Feast of Tabernacles uh, lasts a week. I might have said that already. So we're talking about halfway through that week. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They prided themselves on what they knew. They prided themselves on what they learned and what they'd memorized. I mean, their, their self-confidence was rooted in their understanding of God's word, right, of the truth. 
They go, how does this guy know all this stuff? He didn't study. He doesn't have a degree from our university. He didn't study with us. He doesn't have the same rabbis we had. How does this guy speak like this when he doesn't have the same credentials we've got? And here Jesus speaks now to his motive. It says this in 16. Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The first thing Jesus shows us about his motive that drives his, his method. The first thing he tells us is, I'm not here for my own glory. I'm not here just espousing and sort of spitting out my own ideas and my own thoughts and my own concepts. I've come here to articulate the teaching of God for the glory of God. And he's like, this is how you can tell the difference between someone who's authentic and someone who isn't. Someone who has self-motivation, who's just trying to tell you what they think or their opinions to grow in their own glory is someone whose opinion you should discount and disregard. But someone who is speaking the very words of God for only the glory of God is someone you want to tune into. And that's who I am, he says. What I've come to do here is to glorify God. I don't know if you've had that moment as a human being. You know, we all sort of have these existential moments, that, that like moment where you look in the mirror and you're like, what am I here for? Like, what? I can't believe I'm alive, you know? Why am I alive? What's this all about? Like, why is my heart beating? And, you know, you kind of stare at your fingers or whatever. I think we all kind of go through that process of like, what is the purpose of all this? Do you know the Bible has an answer to that? The Bible has an answer to, to why you're here, what your purpose is. The Bible says that all of us, no matter who you are or where you come from, no matter what color your skin is or how much money you have or what language you speak or what country you come from, that all of us were created with a purpose. We were created from the ground up to glorify God. That we were built from the ground up to worship Him in our thoughts and our words and our attitudes and our actions. That we were created to worship and that all day long we have potential to do what we were built to do when we honor God with our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. And the problem for us is that our culture has said, no, use your thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes to honor yourself. And you and I, we come off the rails and we come apart from our purpose when we start to glorify anything other than God with our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes. When you and I start to glorify ourselves, when we start to glorify our own thinking, when we start to glorify our own perspectives, certainly when we glorify materialism or money or when we glorify one race over the other, when we glorify rich people over poor people or poor people over rich people, when we start to do any of those things that glorify anything and anyone and any idea other than God, we've come off the rails from our purpose. Jesus looks at them and says, my methods are rooted in an understanding that what I do, I do for the glory of God and only the glory of God. My teaching isn't mine. This isn't my thoughts. I'm teaching for the glory of God. Not only does he root them in an understanding that what he's doing is to glorify God, and there is, a, um, there is absolutely an accusation in that because he's pointing at them and going, you feel like you know so much, but your pride has led you astray. Not only does he talk about that as a motive, but look further down. If we read in 21 and following, he says, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? 
Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus says, you're all frustrated because I healed a blind man on the Sabbath. And you feel like I broke your little rules. The problem is that all you care about are your little rules. All you care about is checking the boxes of what a good little religious person looks like and does. Listen, I know that there are some of you sitting in the room today that desperately wish that following Jesus was just adherence to checking off a box of little rules. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do these ten things and you're good. That isn't what saving faith is. It's not about following some rules. Jesus says, you're frustrated with me because I healed a guy on the Sabbath. But listen, you guys yourselves will circumcise a baby on the Sabbath if it happens that the eighth day after he's born lands on a Sabbath because you'll want to uphold Moses' law. You yourself recognize there are places where the literal law isn't the most important thing. And then he speaks to his own motive again. He goes, so why are you angry with me if I've come not just to circumcise someone but to heal the whole man? And in that, Jesus gives us some perspective again of his motive. The motive of Jesus is not just to get people to do good or to get people to follow the rules or to get people to act religious. The goal of Jesus, the motive of Jesus that leads to his method is wholeness. Wholeness in each and every one of us, a restoration of wholeness in us as created beings, but wholeness in the creation as well, it says in Colossians. That he's trying to reconcile and restore all things to himself. Jesus goes, you're frustrated because I broke your little rules, but I didn't come here to keep your little rules. I came here to fix the whole thing. So don't get mad. Jesus' motive is the glory of God first and foremost, but there's also a motive which is restoration and wholeness for the creation. And then not only that, look at what else he says. Keep reading with me. In, um, in like basically 28 and following. They say, well, we know, we know who this guy is and where he comes from. In 28, Jesus says, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. The last thing you and I want to see in Jesus' declaration here is that his motive is rooted in his sentness. I know that's a weird word. But his motives are rooted in the fact that he's on a mission. That his knowledge of God has created in him a sense of mission. He's sent by the God he knows. He looks at them and says, well, you don't even know my father, but the father that I know and have been in the presence of has sent me on a mission. So what I'm doing here is not to please you. It's not to make my brothers happy. It's not to make everybody, you know, excited or to stir up a big crowd. What I've come to do is to be obedient to the sentness that's been placed upon me. I'm on a mission because of my knowledge of my father. And I, I'll tell you, I feel convicted about that. At, at looking at Jesus and recognizing that everything he does is also intended to be a model for me as a disciple, I look at that and I think, if, if I knew the father better, I would be more driven by my mission. But a lot of times I come off the rails with regard to my mission, like my purpose, because I've taken my eyes off the knowledge of the father. Does that make sense? When I start to worry about keeping the rules or I start to worry about pleasing other people or I start worrying about popularity or whatever else, I gotta keep my eyes on the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God will drive my sense of mission. Jesus' motives are the glory of God and the wholeness of man and creation and the fulfillment of his mission which is rooted in his knowledge and that motive drives his method. His method which is what? Well, his method is in obedience to the timing of God. Right, A humble approach that doesn't care about the favor of man and a dedication to truth even if it makes enemies. 
Jesus' motive and method are alien. Everybody in this chapter, everybody in this chapter is confused in one way or another because Jesus' method and motive are alien to them. But even though the people are confused and divided and muttering about him, you can see how thirsty they are, can't you? Can you hear in the text how thirsty they are? They've got their own worldviews. They've got their own plans. They've got their own methods. And yet so much in this text is them going, is he? Could he be? Does he come from Galilee? Does he come from Bethlehem? Could he be the Messiah? Is he the one? Aren't they supposed to arrest him? How come they haven't arrested him? Can the Messiah do more things than this man has done? There is an eagerness and a hunger in them. What does that tell us? It tells us that for all of their confidence in what they know or what they value, for all of their confidence in their religion, for all of their confidence in in their perspective, they're still empty on the inside. And again, that feels so much like the culture in which we live today because there is so much crazy stuff that is put before us with confidence. Like, this is who you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be beautiful, and you're supposed to be rich, and you're supposed to be happy all the time, and everybody's supposed to love you, and you're supposed to have a 1,000 followers or whatever, and yet you get those things, and they're empty, and you're still thirsty. You hit that vacation that you always wanted to go on, and yeah, it's great, but you're still thirsty. You get the followers that you thought you wanted on Facebook, and, and you're still thirsty. You get that money in the bank account that you thought you'd never get and all of a sudden you do and you're still thirsty. You get all the friends that you wanted, you find a maid or whatever and you're still thirsty because none of those other things can satisfy you. None of those other things, they're all broken cisterns that you made yourself that don't hold water. And if you've turned your back on the fountain to put faith in your broken cistern, you're always gonna be hungry, you're always gonna be thirsty. And so Jesus does something beautiful here. As we finish up this morning, I want you to see the timing. And the, uh, every day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest would take a golden pitcher and he would go down to the Pool of Siloam. And he would scoop up water out of the Pool of Siloam and then he would walk in procession. The people would follow him back up like a parade. They'd follow him back up to the temple. And they're singing and, and singing the praises of God. They're reciting scripture. They would recite verses like and including Isaiah 12, 3 that says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Woohoo! right? They walk back up. We'll draw water from the wells of salvation. And they walk back up through the water gate. When they pass through the water gate in procession, the priest holding the golden pitcher, the trumpets would fanfare. The people would celebrate their waving branches. The the priest would walk up the ramp to the altar and he'd hold up the pitcher with the water in it. And the people would say, higher, lift it higher, right? He's holding up this pitcher of water and then he would pour it out and it would cascade out onto the altar and then kind of kind of splatter, sort of like the Shamu show. There's like a splash zone there, right? The the people would would sort of get sprayed with the water and they'd cheer. And it's in that environment. It says on the last day, the great day. On the great day, the priest would actually walk around seven times. This is a big deal. This is the culmination of the festival of booths. The culmination of the feast of booths, the tabernacles. On that day, it says this in John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What are the people celebrating? The people are celebrating their religious ceremony where the water gets poured out from the pool of Siloam. Jesus stands up in the midst of that celebration and he goes, Are you thirsty? Because if you're thirsty... 
This celebration isn't going to do it for you. The golden pitcher's not going to do it for you. The trumpet's blaring. The parades and the procession, they're not going to do it for you. He says, if anyone thirsts, and I'll tell you what, it's everybody in the crowd. Because all of the religious pomp and circumstance and all of their worldviews and all of their values and all of their wants and needs and desires that have confused them with regard to Jesus, those things have left them hungry and thirsty. Jesus stands up, and I don't know if it's like as the water's being poured or after the water's being poured or just before, but he goes, you want to know how to be satisfied? It's not in this. It's in this. He says, anyone, that's everyone, right? He's looking at everybody in that crowd from the high priest himself all the way down to the poorest of the poor at the fringes of this community. He says, anyone here who is thirsty, and that thirst, that thirst is what? It's that lack of satisfaction. It's that, it's that hunger. It's that deep need. You feel that this morning? I would guess that there are definitely some of you in here who've tried everything you can to satisfy your soul. And you're still thirsty. Jesus is talking to you. He's talking to you. 2,000 years ago, he stands up on this particular platform and he says, are you thirsty? None of that other stuff's gonna do it. He says, anyone who thirsts, are you achy and longing? Come to me. I love that invitation. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me. Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. He doesn't say, anybody who's thirsty, I'm gonna sign you up for a new club. Or anybody who's thirsty, I'm gonna walk you through a 12-week course. He says, come here. If you're thirsty, come here. Come to me. He says, whoever believes, and in this case, drinking from Jesus, like we saw last week in John 6, is synonymous with belief. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That drink is to believe. To believe that Jesus is the solution. To believe that he is the son of God. To believe that he is the fountain of living water described in Jeremiah that we've turned away from in lieu of our own cisterns that don't hold water. Believe in him, he says. And if you do, if you come to me and drink, if you believe, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John gives us the note in 39 to say, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, but Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus says, it's not about your values, it's not about your wants, it's not about what you think you know, it's not about religion or any of the rest of that, it's about me. If you come to me and drink, if you come to me and believe, as the scriptures have said, out of your heart, and that word heart there that's translated could be guts or belly, out of your guts will flow a river of living water, the Spirit. Living water will flow out of you. Well, what does that do? Well, number one, it satisfies. It satisfies in a way that nothing else can. Think about all the ways in which we're, we're, we're tempted to discard the method of Jesus, right? That humble, truth-telling method of Jesus, dependent upon the clock, right? Kingdom standard time. Think about all the ways in which we're tempted to abandon kingdom standard time. God's timing, God's purpose, humility, and truth. Think about all the ways in which we want to walk away from those. Why do we want to walk away from them? Because we're unsatisfied in our lives. We think by walking away from those things, we'll find satisfaction in an empty cistern. When we're dependent upon the fountain of living water that is the Spirit of God available to us through Christ then all of a sudden it becomes easy to be dependent upon God's clock because we don't need anything. It becomes easy to declare truth, even if it means we're hated, 
because we are satisfied in him. It becomes easy to be humble because we don't need the praises of men. We don't need the accolades. We don't need the money. We don't need the fame because we are satisfied in him. That well of living water frees us up to have the same method and motive of Christ. But not only that, it says that that well of living water, that river, that spring of living water, will what? It'll gush out of us. What does that mean? Well, that means it also becomes a gift to those around us. If you've ever been around someone who's truly following Jesus, you bump into them and they gush the Holy Spirit, don't they? They gush the Holy Spirit. It's like you just kind of want to be around them more. You're around people who have that living water gushing out of them and you just want to be around them more and more. There's a difference. Love and joy and peace and patience, all the fruits of the Spirit, this satisfaction and contentment in who Christ is. It's meant to be a river that flows out of us into the lives of other people. We become a conduit for the river of life into others. But you know what's so weird? So often when you bump into religious people or you bump into people who would claim to be followers of Jesus or people who always win at Bible trivia or whatever, so often when you bump into those people, they don't gush the Holy Spirit. They don't gush love and joy and peace and patience. They gush what? The other things we see in this chapter. Division and muttering and cursing and frustration and hatred selfishness and pride. Why is it that that's the stuff that's gushing out of the people when you bump into them, even though they call themselves Christians or they call themselves religious? It's because they're, they're operating around an empty cistern that can't hold water. You and I are meant to be satisfied, to drink from the well that is Jesus. And that living water that is his Holy Spirit then pours out of us into the lives of other people. How different would our city be if each and every one of us in this place who call ourselves followers of Jesus gushed the Holy Spirit? That's what he's called us to be. That's what he's called us to do. There is so much confusion in this text because people are trying to make Jesus fit their framework. They're trying to make Jesus fit their expectations and their hopes. But in this text, Jesus looks at them and says, abandon your framework and adopt mine. Come to me and drink. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us an accurate and honest evaluation of ourselves. That we would look at the places where we've, <laughs> where we've been unwilling to be dependent upon your timing or your truth, where we've been arrogant and prideful, we've been confident in our own knowledge, our own way of doing things, and yet we're left so thirsty. God, would you let us look into the mirror of your word and not walk away and forget what we see there, but would you stir in us a deep thirst for you? And would you make in us, would you create in us a gushing river of the Spirit of God that would pour into the lives of other people and would satisfy us as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.